You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2017 film, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. So this movie um, follows an author named Rebecca Skloot, and she learns about the story of the Gila Cells... And these HeLa cells were cancer cells, and they were they've been used, still used to this day for re- medical research, and they've done a lot of groundbreaking things for any major cure for anything. Like they've been used, and they started in Hopkins, and they gone on. They're called HeLa cells. Yeah. The reason why they're called HeLa cells is for the person where the cells came from, Henrietta Lacks. She was an African American woman. In Baltimore, and she was suffered from cervical cancer, and without her consent or knowledge, they they took her cells and used them. And it wasn't until later on that the, her family figured out what was going on. And this story, um, Rebecca Skloot meets one of um, the daughters of Henrietta Lacks, Deborah, who Deborah's was only two when her mother passed away. And they sort of go on this quest to find more about Henrietta Lacks and more about the background of the HeLa cells. And she wants to write a book. And this is sort of based on a true story because she wrote that book, Rebecca Skloot, in 2010. And it was a huge bestseller. Yes. It made all the awards. It's been taught even in high schools, I believe. And eventually, the background, Oprah Winfrey... You know, with all her um, kind of influence and connections, she wanted to get this movie made into a film. So that's why it was made in 2017, and Oprah Winfrey plays the daughter, Deborah. This was a huge um, book. I mean, it's every it got huge critical reviews. It's won many awards. And I'm wondering, because this movie is pretty short. It's a little over an hour and a half. And I'm one of the things I watched, and a lot of people have these same criticisms, that it's too short, they rush through everything. A lot of the things were explained more in the book. And I wonder if this works better as something as a longer, like a two-hour documentary or a miniseries. Because I don't, like, the movie's okay, but I feel like the source material is too rich and too extensive to just do an hour-and-a-half movie on. Yeah, um, and I know... I. I I kind of had the same response. There's there are some very very powerful scenes in that movie, uh, particularly when uh, Deborah has flashbacks to um, the abuse that occurred to her from Ethel and Galen, who were supposed to take care of the children after Henrietta passed away. Uh, that th- those scenes work extremely well. Um, but I agree. I think they attempted to force too much into too short a time period here. And this story, 
the amount of research that I, I wouldn't just say Skloot did it, but her and Deborah, you very clearly see this in the film. They worked together. It was just as much a research project for Deborah as it was for Skloot. And the amount of uh, background they were able to dig up on uh, Henrietta, who obviously Deborah had no recollection of, and even even uh, her oldest son, Joe, uh, didn't have much recollection of her. They were still able and learn a great deal. And you get glimpses of some fascinating characters in this story, um, in the film, and they're more fully covered in the book. Uh, one that particularly uh, stands out is Bobette, and she's the woman that actually takes the kids from the abusive couple. And uh, her character, for me, I really wanted to see her develop more. She appears early in the film when Skloot make, makes her has her first meeting with the surviving family members. And you can see, of all of the people involved, she's the one that knows the most about the HeLa cells. In fact, I, if I recall correctly, she's the one that first discovered the existence of the HeLa cells quite by accident. When somebody said, oh, wait, you're a member of the Lax family? I think they were giving her medical Yeah, the doctor, care. and they talked about all the where her mother's been and yeah. she's been in space. And so stuff. this is a big shock to her she discovers this. So she is... I almost wish they had made her a main character of this film because she's kind of a mama bear, mm-hmm. you know. And I like when, that character. Yeah, she has when uh, Skloot has that first meeting with the family, and the main purpose is to kind of feel Skloot out to see, you know, what her real motives are. Yes, the brothers are talking, but and she's sitting in the background. But she, you know, you can tell even though she's in the background, she's listening intently because she is really trying to figure out what this person's deal is. Yes, and and she does eventually get the uh, imprimatur of Bobette. It, it's good, and I like that. It, it's those kinds of things. I wish they had... I, I understand Winfrey's desire or the, the recognitions of, uh, that this story was important and it need, needed to get out in the form of a film. The fact that the book did so well is also a recognition of the fact that this is an important story it needed to get out. I just, I, I'm, I'm with you. I wish they made it. For me, I think it would have been best as a miniseries. Yeah, some bur- books work better as a miniseries because there's just too much detail to just cover in an hour and yeah. a half, two hour movie. And they, they, they could have even developed to some extent the story of uh, Doctor Gay, G E Y. The man who uh, who was a cancer researcher and actually ended up creating the Gila line with his wife. There's an interesting backstory there. Um, uh, he, he he's a more complex character. It comes through in the book, from what I understand. It comes. He's more of a complex character. He's not a simple bad guy. Uh, he was doing cancer research. He he was looking for uh, lines of cancer cells that could survive long enough to be tested. And he was given this biopsy after it had been used by Dr. Howard, who was Henrietta's doctor, and found that the thing simply wouldn't die. The, uh, the mass of the lump doubled in size in approximately 24 to 48 hours. So that provided an opportunity for the cancer research. And then as time went on, they discovered it could be used for other things. Now, he propagated the cell line 
and he gave it to other researchers free of charge. He never seek, uh, sought to commercialize it. Later on, it did become commercialized as biotechnology firms started propagating and selling these cell lines for handsome profits. Um, but he himself didn't. And he actually died of cancer later in his life and uh, wanted to give away his cell line. Unfortunately, unlike Henrietta's, which was very unusual in that regard, his didn't survive. Most, most cells taken from patients don't survive, but hers would not die. And he doesn't even appear in the film. He's mentioned he doesn't appear. Yeah. Um, or he does very briefly, I think. I it think. may be in the, yeah. that very, very beginning yes. once they get the cells. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, it's interesting because the beginning of the movie, what starts Rebecca Sklute on this path of making this book, she says, I've heard of her name, but I know nothing about her. I want to know who Henrietta Lacks is as a person. And once again, I feel that, you know, the movie is called, as well as the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And I wonder if by the end do we do get to know her? We we get these interviews from her family, and they give some insight that you know she was a very friendly person. She had friends. She liked to go to the carnival and go up top on the Ferris wheel, and you know she was always welcoming, having people over for you know dinner for fa- big gatherings and events. But I do wonder, does the film kind of brush over her? Because some people felt that. They felt that maybe if it was a miniseries, it would be in three parts. And we have the whole first part would be dedicated to Henrietta Lacks. We don't just see flashbacks, but we do follow her life leading up until her death, that's cervical cancer. Yeah, and she is certainly not a main character at all in the film. Uh, the main character is Deborah. Deborah and, and, and Sklu, they are the two main characters. Um and I, I partially, I think, maybe they were attempting to reflect the fact that the, the kids knew little or nothing about their mother uh, other than those snippets and bis- bits and pieces of stories that were told by surviving family members. Maybe that was part of the intent there, but again, I think you're right. It's a bit of a missed opportunity. Um, there, w- there was enough information there, I think, to be able to you know, have an episode or two in a miniseries um, devoted to the uh, Henrietta's life in the 40s and 50s. Uh, I think they could have done that. Um, and again, that was a choice to be made because I think, I think what they were trying to do here is emphasize two things in the making of this film. One, the tragedy that befell members of that family, especially the kids, when they lost their mother especially at an early age. Two, um, um, almost doesn't need to be say, said because it is so obvious, but the, um, the uh, ethical travesty that occurred um, uh, with the uh, uh, way that um, the family was treated, Henrietta was treated uh, without uh, 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 giving her consent with regard to the, um, uh, quote, donating of the uh, biopsy, right? And and that's an interesting point because fundamentally uh, the rules that were uh, around in that day have not been changed with regard to biopsies or other um, 
materials that are taken from patients in the process of diagnosing um, their ailments. It is still the case. There's this thing called the common rule. It's still the case that as long as the uh, piece of material is not identified as coming from person uh, X, you know, giving their name, um, the institutions are allowed to do with them what they want. There was a case in the 70s of a leukemia patient. I can't recall his name, but um, uh, something like that happened with him. Uh, material was taken from him. It was eventually used in research. He found out. He took it to court. He won that case. And Henrietta's family uh, uh, is, uh, is uh, incensed that this has happened to them. They claim uh, Hopkins made a lot of money, and uh, that may not be true. They, they certainly garnered a lot of uh, successful research, but certainly the biotech companies that eventually uh, started um, growing the Gila lines and selling them did make a lot of money. And the ironic thing is one of the, one of the uh, uh, sons of Henrietta had cancer and was unable to get medical care, even though his mother's cell line has done a lot to further cancer research. And I think the question everybody raises, which I think is the answer is yes, is that was Henrietta kept in the dark about the consent due to the fact that of her skin color that she was black? And it raises similarities to other cases. I think mm-hmm. the mainly we talked about this a long time ago when we did the show for the movie Extreme Measures. Yeah. But the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study, where men with syph- African American men with syphilis were conducted in the study, told that they would get treatment, but they were withheld treatment for 40 years so they could stu- so the su- scientists could study the effect of syphilis on the body. And there's yep. also another one, uh, the man named James Sims. He was considered the father of gynecology, and in, he was around in the mid-19th century in the South, so this is still when slavery was still going on. And he would conduct experiments and such on African-American enslaved women. And yep. since they were slaves, they had no rights, so he could do whatever he wanted to them. Yep, and he actually made that argument explicitly. Uh, what the owners would do was turn over ownership to him long enough for him to do this. And he conducted these surgical experiments uh, without anesthetic, thinking that... Uh, uh, quote, uh, it's not an exact quote, but uh, the Negroes don't feel pain like white people do. So they did that. And, there, and another case is the case of Vivian Thomas, which is a little bit of a different case. Yeah. Um, Vivian Thomas, is he was a laboratory assistant, quote, uh, to Alfred Blaylock, a doctor who uh, re, re, uh, garnered a great deal of fame for uh, having invented a surgical a heart surgical procedure for a certain kind of defect um, that basically causes the heart to bypass the lungs the oxygenation portion of the uh, circula- circulatory uh, movement of the of the blood and uh, in fact uh, Thomas was the one that came up with the procedure 
And it's very telling that uh, Blaylock insisted when he was hired uh, by uh, Hopkins to come up north and work there from his uh, hospital in Tennessee. He insisted that Thomas come with him. You know why? If you read the case, it's because Thomas did this procedures. He's the guy. In the, he hired this guy. Uh, they were doing research on dogs, surgical research on dogs. He jumped in early on, and he was doing amazing work. He, he even said, uh, Blaylock said sometimes when he was looking at um, uh, the, 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 the results of the uh, surgery, he couldn't even see the stitching. This looks like it's the work of the hands of God, which means it was a perfect perfect suture and he took him with he took him up north with him and uh, still took all the credit for this guy's work now eventually he was honored and given an honorary doctorate they couldn't give him an honorary doctorate in medical science though because he didn't have the appropriate um, uh, uh, educational background so they gave him one in law and he still actually worked there training people up until his, uh, he, he got that honorary doctorate in 76. Um, but uh, another his case, case was the famous blue babies, right? The, yes. Right. And they were blue because of that lack, lack of oxygenation, um, horrible defect, but he found the cure for it. Yeah. And for those who aren't wondering, this was also made into a movie called something the Lord made, which starred Alan Rickman and the rapper most deaf. And that was also aired on HBO just like this movie and I because both movies you you make the comparisons because Johns Hopkins is the main setting and one thing I noticed because I believe both of them were were, some of them were shot on location at Johns Hopkins and one of the things I'm wondering in this movie is does it kind of let Hopkins off the hook at the end because there's that final scene when they're going to Hopkins and you and Deborah is because she's a very religious person. She's almost in awe of the famous Jesus statue that you see at Johns Hopkins, and she even touches the foot at the end. Yeah. And this uh, one of the scientists takes him to this facility, and he lets him hold the HeLa cells. And I just kind of wonder, and they're very, you know, it's like this very touching and emotional scene. And I'm wondering, does that is like the movie almost saying like, it's okay now? Or I, I, I'm not quite I, I, sure. I'm not quite sure either. I I I think because um, they they do shoot on location yes. there. So I'm wondering if that means Hopkins says, "Well, you got to make us not look that bad." I they I don't know if they were that brash to say that because mm-hmm. they they uh, they had to have they had to interact with the Lax family, and they have been interacting with the Lax family for some time. And uh, um, there, there's certain parts of their website. If you go to the Johns Hopkins website, they discuss Henrietta Lacks, and they, they actually uh, discuss that common rule and say it's still in effect, interestingly enough. Uh, they don't say too much about whether they think it should be modified or not, but they have set up grants and, and uh, programs kind of similar to uh, uh, the Henrietta Lacks Foundation, which uh, Rebecca Sklute set up. Um, so they have been working with them to try and recompense them in, in, in some time, in some ways, monetary as well. Um, so I don't know if it's 
trying to let them off uh, so much as it's recognizing the fact that they have uh, tried to make uh, amends over over the decades. Um, but still, there's that pointed reference to the the rule still being in effect that is the text at the end of the the film. And there's still that debate on whether is they still the, the, has the Hopkins family given. Uh, financial compensation yet for the Lax family? That I don't know. Yeah. That I don't know. Because um, they talk about how they still haven't received anything for the things that the Gila cells have done. Well, and I don't know if that's a reference so much to Hopkins as it, as it is a reference to the biotech, uh, biotech uh, uh, industry. There, there is, there's a couple of instances where, uh, Corporate entities from the biotech industry have given them grants. There's a company called Abcam in the UK. They gave them a grant. There's the Howard Hughes um, Medical Institute, who is the largest nonprofit research. And we should note that after the creation of this book, uh, Deborah Sklut helped start the Henrietta Lacks Foundation, which is somewhere where this money is going towards. Yeah. Now... Uh, Sklut and Deborah actually started creating the uh, basis for that foundation as they were writing the book. Um, but notice here, this is what's kind of a little bit disturbing about uh, about this is it's only it was only done recently, and Sklut really was the impetus, I think, behind this. Without her having done this, without her having uh, publicized this story through a best-selling book. You do have to ask whether these uh, biotech uh, companies would have done this. And it raises a great question. Um, They all admit that this kind of cell line is extremely rare. Some people even suggest hers might be the only one that has this kind of immortality in that you, you simply can't kill the things. Now, given that that's the case, uh, you can contrast it with an argument that's sometimes made uh, that you know it's it's not practicable to give people um, monetary recompense for using their cells. And the basic idea is, well, you know, there's so much of this done in, in thousands and thousands of hospitals around the world um, that there's no feasible way of tracking. Uh, who's uh, what? Sam- uh, which samples come from who? So you wouldn't be able to uh, pay them for the use of those cells. Now, so so it's it's not possible from a practical aspect. They would say, um, and that's quite apart from morally whether you should do it or not. And there's actually been cases where. Uh, uh, the argument has been made before courts that w- once uh, an organ or some material is taken out of your body during a surgery or stuff, it is essentially kind of like your trash. When you throw out your trash, uh, it becomes it's no longer your property for legal uh, purposes. Um, so um, that argument has been made, right? 
in, on the basis of those two lines of argumentation, the, the, the case is made that, you know, it's not practical to do this. Well, it, that seems to be completely beside the fact with regard to the cell line, that, the HeLa cell line, because it is highly unusual. It's almost unique. So there's no difficulty in identifying who it belongs to. So that shows you there is at least the possibility that such things can happen again. So the question arises, why not require hospitals to ask, to get consent, not only for taking the biopsies and other materials, but for research purposes, right? Mm -hmm. And then you track it. And if it becomes something amazing like the HeLa line, then that person has the, the ability to be compensated for that. If you think about it, I think it makes perfect sense. I mean, we pay a great deal of money for health care, right? Yeah. Uh, either uh, uh, privately or through government-sponsored programs. So it seems to me it would be simple enough to do that. And given the rarity of these kinds of cases, uh, it'd be easily trackable. And I think that would be the appropriate amount of respect given to people. Because um, I, I think this case very strongly highlights the contrast between uh, Hopkins as a uh, healthcare institution and the other one we haven't mentioned yet, the Crown. The yeah, I was just Crown's about Bill to bring Hospital. that up because. We were um, talking about, you know, things like the Tuskegee syphilis study. And because it's mentioned that one of the lax family members was sent to Crownsville. And yes. Crownsville's in Maryland. And that has a very infamous reputation because it was especially African-Americans were sent there. And there's just documents, decades and decades of horrific abuse. And it's remembered that the yeah. lax family member was, was she lobotomized? It was, uh, yeah, Elsie Lax. Elsie. She was... Uh, uh, a sister of Deborah and Henrietta was unable to keep care of her because she was development, developmentally um, um, delayed, had probably had epilepsy and the, the, uh, the uh, medical explanation is for this is probably that she had uh, uh, taken, taken on syphilis from her mother. So she made the painful decision to, send her for medical care and there there were precious few options for blacks in those days so she ended up at the crownsville center and they, they actually a pretty powerful part of this film is they, they show deborah discovering what happened to her and i've, I've read the portions of the uh, excerpts of the book uh, where Skloot and Deborah go to this hospital. It's fairly accurate in this film. There's actually a friendly guy that helps. They get really lucky and just happen to find uh, one file that hasn't just disappeared from that year, 1955, when Elsie died. And uh, they had uh, done, um, you're correct, they had drilled holes in her skull to uh, uh, relieve pressure and blow air in there. But um, whether, it, whether this was done truly for uh, medical purposes or it was done for experimentation, uh, 
there is good reason for doubt because it was systematic in that institution. It was actually an area where they, it was actually a, a hospital where they just, they just dumped uh, Negroes, essentially. And, and not all of them were necessarily medical cases. They put criminals in there with these patients. And they did a lot of experimentation. There was a lot of neglect and abuse, and it was very overcrowded. At the time that uh, Elsie was in there, there were over 2,700 patients. And if you've ever seen that uh, complex, it's not that big. It's still standing today. And and it is still standing. Even though it was ceased operations in 2004. Yes. So the contrast can't be be any more uh, explicit between the high-tech, cutting-edge, state-of-the-art care that you would have got at Hopkins and this abysmal excuse for care that you would have got at the Crownsville Institution. Um, You know, uh, people are always wondering, you know, what kind of object cases can there be that would illustrate uh, the contention that systematic racism existed then? Crownsville, there is no better. No better example. No better example. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, Reach episode that dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.